Chapter Two of Clouds Cover the Campus by Daniel A. Lord S. J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Two. During that long circuit of the preliminary scenes, I left myself, and incidentally you, standing in old Short Circuit's laboratory, to return to that now gruesome spot. Often I have wondered what precisely I should do if I stumbled upon a freshly murdered man. I guess that's because when in a film the hero starts back and places a fevered hand on his forehead, I groan inside, shift uncomfortably in my seat and think, punk direction, not the way I'd do it. Well, as it turned out, that wasn't the way I did it. I just stood there looking at the laboratory of recent tragedy, and except for a feeling in the pit of my stomach that I have when the elevator drops too fast, I was almost deadly calm. I should have made more gestures, gone into more emotional excitement, if I'd found old Short Circuit only asleep. That, I remember thinking, would have been the real surprise. Queer how cool we are in the face of horror and tragedy. But whatever the external excitement, I may have manifested, I know that the sight of old Eisenberg dead would have my perceptions to Diamond Point. I know I saw all the details in that room with a clarity I'd never had before. I saw lying on the littered table an innocent-looking envelope that had Julia May's handwriting on it. It was addressed to her uncle. I noticed the cancelled stamp and knew it had been mailed to him, and I thought at the time that obvious spots are the perfect hiding places. I saw on the floor something small and bright that looked as if it had rolled from the professor's fingers, and flung far by the fall of the bomb site lay the one thing that neither Nils nor I had ever been allowed to see, the essential eyepiece of the bomb site. When the rest of the machine had been smashed in the fall, that had shot into a corner where only I, who knew the laboratory so thoroughly, would have thought of looking. These trifles I saw for the simple reason that I was looking for them. The open and hurricane-tossed files, the drawers of his laboratory desk, one disorderly mess of jumbled junk. This I had expected. This interested me not in the least. I snapped off the light, closed and locked the door quietly from the inside, and with a faint light from the campus guiding me, I picked up the envelope, pocketed the bright small object, and caught tight in my palm the essential eyepiece. Then harsh, insistent knuckles beat on the panel of the laboratory door. I stood stock still, my mind in perfect focus, my nerves without a quiver. In an instant I made my decision. Whatever happened, I couldn't be caught with a freshly murdered man there at my feet. It was no trick to imitate old Short Circuit's voice. We all did it around the campus, part of the varsity jargon. So in his thick accent I cried, Who's there? Michael, came the voice of the janitor, who naturally enough didn't know that his campus name was Charlie. And then I could almost hear his sigh of relief. You are all right? Professor, tell me, you are all right? Some time ago I heard a crash. Then, I thought, running feet. I was in bed, but it came at last. I put all of the professor's irritation and annoyance into my rasping voice. Go away, you old fool, I shouted. Go back to bed. I dropped a test tube, and he comes to spy on me. Leave me in peace, you nuisance. Even through the thick door I could hear Charlie snort. Test tube, yeah, in heavy irony. But he obeyed the order of the pseudo-professor, and I heard his limping feet move back down the corridor, and the door of his room slam shut. Now was the time to escape. I cut across the dark room toward the door, but just as I laid my hand on the knob, 
the phone rang. To answer or not to answer. If I didn't, Charlie would think it strange and would come back. If I did, I should have to go on with my masquerade, with possible unpleasant consequence to myself. In swiftly planned compromise, I lifted the phone and held it to my ear. But I said nothing. An impatient voice was shouting into the phone and annoyed and insistent, Hello? Even that one word was shrouded in a thick vocal disguise. It was a night for false voices, I thought in my secret heart. Hello, 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 continued the voice. I could almost feel the intensity with which he waited for an answer. Then came a sigh of relief, a sudden markedly German gut, and I was holding a dead receiver in my hand. If up to that point I had been calm enough and holding my nerves like the reins guiding a dozen teams of coach horses, for the next few minutes I came near going all to pieces. For now there was nothing for it but to get out of that laboratory, down the hall, and back to my room. I managed it, heaven knows how. In my own room I pulled the paper out of the envelope I had stolen and made a quick substitution, tossed the small bright object into my collar box for further investigation, and looked about the room for a hiding place for the eyepiece. Maybe just for your entertainment, in case you are one of those neat and methodical souls, I ought to describe my room. Or, shall I spare your feelings? Shall I omit details of the coffee-pot on the table since morning, of half a cupful of grey, dismal coffee, standing cold and repulsive, of the books that lay in geological strata on the floor, of the chairs which hospitably served so many capacities that there was not one chair left on which to sit? Anyhow, while you're having your laugh at the world's untidiest room, I'll hide the eyepiece, if you don't mind. That's just in case someone should think of me and come calling. For I'm quite sure his search will be thorough, when and if he calls. Next I did a crazy thing. I called Dick and Harry, in that order, and said, I've a hunch, query as it may seem, that old short circuit is still working on that bomb site. Want to drop up and beard the lion, and maybe wangle a drink? Dick and Harry are always ready for anything, provided it comes after ten at night. So they yapped a cheerful affirmative. And soon Dick's car, which looks like the last car left on a second-hand lot, and rides like something off the Indianapolis Speedway, was at the door of Hadley. We picked up Harry and raced back to the laboratory. I kept them talking so that they wouldn't think of looking up at the professor's tell-tale windows, now dark. We meandered up the stairs and down the corridor. Light leaked through the transom of old Charlie's room, so I paused, pounded on the door, and heard the old fellow creak out of bed and across the floor. Just dropping in to see old Short Circuit, I explained, unless, of course, you insist on our stopping with you for a glass of vintage wine. Charlie, standing there in the dim light, looked more like Charles Lawton than ever. He was a queasy old bird, no doubt of that, and the memory of the murdered man on whom we were going to call, and the sight of this twisted cripple as a sort of porter at the gate, gave me a real attack of nerves. I know I felt sweat on my forehead. I hoped that the light that was at his back and on our faces wasn't giving me away. But Charlie was grumbling. Then why don't you see him? he growled. He's working in there, right enough. I knocked a few minutes ago, so just open the door. He may not answer if you knock. Then dismissing us in the way he shook off all the wild brood of American students, he violently waggled his head and muttered, Mad, mad. If they go to college, they are all mad and he shut us off into the dark corridor. 
Naturally, the professor didn't answer my insistent knocking. Naturally, I followed the blessed cue dropped by Charlie and opened the door. As if by instinct, my hand reached for the switch. And when I threw it on, I did just what the hero always does in the films. I started back. I gripped the side of the door. I threw the back of my hand to my mouth and gave a highly dramatic and splendidly directed imitation of a man startled in the unexpected presence of death. Dick and Harry, however, were so engrossed with what they saw that they had little time to applaud my absolute authentic performance. Next thing I knew, Dick was on the phone, calling first the police, and then, proper order, it occurred to me, the dean. Julia May, I cried, thinking really for the first time of what this would mean to her. Harry, who always knows exactly what to do, took over. We'll stay until the police and the dean come, he said. You go over and tell Julia May. Maybe his wife ought to be told, too. And into that afterthought, he put all the ironic suspicion that the campus felt where Mrs. Eisenberg was concerned. At any rate, I knew that it would be easier for me to be out of the way when the questions began to pop. So, leaving Dick and Harry to do what explaining might have to be done by someone who had just stumbled on a murdered man, I caught the ignition key Dick tossed me, left the laboratory, rapped on Charlie's door with an imperative, Get dressed and go to the lab. The professor's been murdered. And cut off for the little bungalow in the far corner of the campus, where Eisenberg had been established when first he came from Germany. I had expected that I might have to arouse the family. Instead, I found the living room lights on and the veranda doors open, the pan velvet lamplight unwinding itself into the gloom. It's never much fun being the bearer of bad news. Much less so is it when the girl is someone very important to you and the woman is someone you dislike. Still, I knocked gently on the door jam and heard Mitzi Eisenberg's steps and voice moving toward me. Ah, oh, good evening. She smiled with the smile she had had for all the professor's graduate students. It left me as chilled as an icebox cake. Maybe some people like the type. I prefer honest cotton to imitation silk. I raised my voice so that if the light upstairs meant that Julia May was still reading, she'd hear me and come down without a special call. May I see you for just a minute, Mrs. Eisenberg? I asked. Her manner was a poem in motion, a poem of hospitality and feminine charm, a little on the unconsciously Dorothy Parker side. But first, said she, you must meet Dr. Elwell. Doctor, this is one of my husband's favorite students, and I believe he is by way of being a bit of a genius, aren't you, Tom? Her smile was like sun on lemon sherbet. Dr. Elwell is really a famous explorer, although this is the first time he's explored the jungles of an American campus. Won't you mix yourself a drink, Tom? The doctor was as foreign as a European passport. He even clicked his heels when he bowed to acknowledge the handshake. If he had been wearing a monocle, I should have said, Hello, Mr. von Stroheim, without thinking, and if he had tossed me a mouthful of gutturals by way of first comment, I should have been not in the least surprised. Instead, he simply said, Charmed, which wasn't enough conversation to give me a sample of his particular dialect, and buried his face in the circumference of a highball. I wondered if I dared risk, Quick, Henry, the flit. Then I decided he might have seen the American ads. Anyhow, a beloved voice brought me around, and in the doorway stood Julia May. "'What's wrong, Tom? What's happened?' 
she cried with that marvelous telepathy that makes women read your mind. I told them as quietly as I could. Mitzi screamed and threw herself on the Davenport. Ah, I thought as he bent to her side, Elwell is not a medical doctor, but he's willing to substitute. Julia May's lips quivered, and then she said quietly, I'll get my coat, and a cape for you, Mitzi, and was gone. By the time we reached the laboratory, it was fairly overflowing with people, local police, reporters who hadn't had a story like this in the history of Rockledge, Dean Rothen giving a fine imitation of a duck that has hatched rattlesnake eggs, Sidney Weiss of the Daily Rockledger looking superior, but very wide-eyed and alert, and a dozen or more supernumeraries. Mitzi Eisenberg had been to the movies, too. She knew just what a loving wife does when she first sees the body of her beloved murdered husband. She was just about to throw herself upon him, after one of the most dramatic room crossings since the days of Mrs. Siddons, when two detectives caught her and held her suspended midway. "'Don't, lady,' said the younger. "'Not till we've taken pictures and made a complete examination.' Cops have neither a sense of drama nor a feeling for romance." Mitzi's face had a time of it, hiding the fact that she despised them for it. Julia May crossed the room and stood looking down at the man who had been a father to her, and more than that in the hour of her need. She didn't say a word, but the tears that streaked her cheeks needed no glycerin priming. You can easily tell real grief by what it does to lips, even when there is no sound. I heard the grinding of brakes and the squeal of rubber on the drive outside. I was near the window, and I glanced out. The sleek, military-looking car of Morin had pulled up in a miraculous stop. Out jumped a chauffeur, and orderly, small, efficient, silent, who threw open the door. The long athletic legs of the French aviator hit the ground with a startling speed, and were instantly in motion toward the science building and us. Some men have the gift of taking command. Morin is one of them. When he entered the room, Every one of us swung toward him, accepting his leadership without his needing to demand our obedience. He was across the room in long, nervous strides, and kneeling at the side of the murdered professor. This time none of the cops objected as he gently turned the battered head, and then covered it with a fine linen handkerchief. Slowly he rose, and took in that room with eyes that had learned to suck up every detail of a landscape fifteen thousand feet below him. The motive is clear he said, talking now straight to the dean, who was still jittering without the need of adequate music. The bomb site. His slim, carefully gloved hand swept the room and came to rest in exact point at the smashed bomb site. Once more he was down on his knees, this time examining the wreckage that littered the floor. Broken beyond hope of reconstruction, he muttered, and then his brilliant eyes again swept the room, and the essential piece is missing. He looked up and at each of us in turn, as if his X-ray eyes were boring into our persons and would come to rest upon the telltale piece. If we can find that, we can find the murderer. Deep down in my heart, I hope that if that were logic, they'd not find the man with the eyepiece. Again he was on his feet, and now he was facing me. You work with the professor, I believe. I nodded. I could as well deny the color of my hair or the hypothesis that I'd had a father and a mother. You could construct that again, supposing, that is, that the essential piece was located. I shook my head. No one but the professor ever saw it completely put together, 
Nils and I just helped make the individual parts. He never showed us the plans. Morin moved to the wreck files and paused at the rifle drawers. So there were plans. They must have got those. I shrugged. If anyone was to answer that, Julia May was the one. Involuntarily, my eyes sought hers. She picked up the look as if it had tossed her a cue. I can soon tell you, she answered, and swept aside a few things that littered the table. She turned and faced Morin. They're gone. Not that I think they'll do anyone much good. My uncle dictated in code. In fact, the plans looked very much like a personal letter. But they're gone. Someone must have suspected or known. And uncomfortably, I realized that she was fully aware that if anyone knew about the plans seeming to be like a letter, it was Nils or myself. And Nils, as far as we knew, had not as yet even heard of the tragedy. Morin suddenly whirled around and leveled his cool, penetrating eyes on Charlie. The old janitor was far back in the corner, and I was amazed to see that there was genuine grief in his eyes. Indeed, from the way he twisted his fingers and struggled to keep his lips firm, I should have said that he and Julia May were the only two in the room who felt authentic sorrow. You, said Morin, an officer hot on the scent, with no time for personal feelings. When that thing crashed, you sat in your room and did nothing? Charlie hunched forward, the tears glistening in his eyes. As he started to speak, I saw Morin's chauffeur bring to the doorway Dr. Elwell. We had left him downstairs. Curiosity, or simple bad taste, had evidently made him persuade the chauffeur to bring him up. Now the two of them, an incongruous pair, stood staring at the drama before them. Charlie looked up from under those hedges of eyebrows, but his face was transparently guiltless. "'I am an old man,' he said. "'I go to bed early. Yes, I did hear the crash. I did finally get up. I knocked on the door. I asked if he was all right.' "'And you got silence?' concluded Morin for him, then why didn't you immediately suspect? The innocent look on Charlie's face gave way to bewilderment. I don't understand, he muttered. He answered me. He what? I think fully six voices shouted the question. If there was anyone in the room who didn't feel inclined to ask it, that sole person was myself. The old janitor thrust out his jaw. He saw that they thought he was crazy or lying. I stood as far back as I could in the shadows and watched the faces. They were worth watching, believe me. People don't take it easily when a credible witness tells them that a dead man spoke, and what's more, told him that he, the corpse, was quite all right. I asked him if anything was wrong. He told me to go to bed and not be an old fool, just like he always called me. He called me an old fool. The janitor dwelt on that as if it had been a compliment. I must say that I stood a little in awe of my own prowess as an actor. Dean Rothen, who couldn't stay long out of the spotlight without developing a nervous itch, sprang forward. This is nonsense. Why, the professor was dead, clearly dead, killed by the blow that smashed the precious bomb site, and this man here says... Poor Charlie suddenly began to look abjectly guilty, and reviewing the whole situation, I realized that he might be the man... He had been alone up here. He had not moved when the bombsite crashed. He might have heard me, probably did hear me come down the corridor. What finer way of throwing me off the scent, all of us off the scent, than to pretend he thought the professor, somehow I couldn't think of him as old short-circuit any longer, was alive. 
But what, I puzzled, must he have thought when the dead man answered? If he were guilty, could he have taken that as calmly as he did? But Moiron was talking again, once more an accepted authority. I was glad that he was so keenly on the job. There was something so magnificently efficient, so upright, strong about him. Yet, on the other hand, if he found that I had been there, and dabbled with evidence, carried off essential pieces. With a shudder I realized that once again I had simply not been able to mind my own business. And his next statement gave me goosebumps that covered me the way Gopher Hills covered a western prairie. Dean, this with quiet certainty, I strongly advise your calling in the government at once. These gentlemen, and like the polite Frenchman he was, he bowed to the local police, are excellent, but this concerns the world's greatest bomb site. Clearly this splendid man deliberately threw himself against the uprights and smashed the machine even as the traitor was striking him with a deadly weapon. But still the traitor or traitors have the plans, whether or not they can read them, and the essential eyepiece is gone. Dean, may I suggest that without delay you call in the FBI or the Army Intelligence? And we all knew that he had spoken sound wisdom. By some campus underground telegraph, we all learned that Morin was to talk to the aviation cadets the next morning. So Dick, Harry, and I were down to hear what he had to say. Since the beginning of the government school, we had come to admire this brilliant aviator. We knew that the young aviators fairly adored him. They were standing at ease when Dick's car pulled up at the field, and we hopped out. Almost at the same minute, Morin's chauffeur whirled his powerful car alongside ours, and Morin, hardly waiting for the car to stop, was out and in the midst of the young men. From the corner of my eye I saw Sidney Weiss, pencil and pad in hand, waiting to catch the talk. As we sauntered past him, he spat acid in our direction. Let us now all die for our country as the great Professor Eisenberg died, he mimicked. Let us learn by our skill in killing how to make up for the loss of the precious bomb site that would have facilitated the slaughter of tens of thousands. Dick thrust out his jaw. It was a pal of mine that talked you the last time. How about my taking a turn now? Why not? asked Weiss insolently. What more adequate solution of any problem could you find than a sock in the jaw? After all, there is no argument like force. You believe it. They, and he waved at the young aviators, they believe it, so prove I'm wrong. Knock me down. As if he knew from instinct that this was no time for lengthy orations, Morin stood in the midst of the young aviators and packed all he had to say into short phrases. I believe that Professor Eisenberg died last night for our country, your country, as truly as does a man who was slain on the battlefield. I believe that the same forces that drove him from the country reached out and slew him here. You and the twenty thousand young men like you are training for the day when, free eagles of the air, you will turn back the vultures that come from slave states. That's all. I shall watch the morning flights with special interest today. Carry on. What he said, he said in hardly more than a conversational tone. But when he had finished, those whose turn it was to take the flight aloft almost leaped to their planes. Little as I like war, and much as I hate the lack of faith, the lack of human love that make war necessary. I myself got a thrill as they took off. Three, and then three, and then three, small V's mounting until there were twelve of them in the air, and moving in the simple formations they had learned in their brief training. 
Dick and Harry and I sat in his queer old car and watched them fly. The stuff out of which comes the world's greatest flying, said Dick. Aunt Harry, who was still too recent a pilot for more than a simple solo flight, watched them, bright little searchlights in his eyes. Then suddenly things started to happen. The second three seemed to melt out of shape. One of the planes, the one to the right, was clearly out of control. Then in the third three, the middle plane, started to waver and to do things that even my otherly amateur eye knew to be wrong. False, terrifying. I saw Morin rush across the field from the car, near which he had been standing, to the station from which the ground radio man kept in constant communication with the college's young student flyers. The three of us were out of our car and across the field in record time, and near enough to Morin, to hear him barking through the transmitter, which he held in his hand. His face was pale and sweaty. His words were staccato with apprehension. Rodney and Watkins. He was probably talking to the two in trouble. Never mind the planes. Bail out. The rest of you spread. Wide. It was as if in the stress of things he had forgotten technical terms. Perhaps he was thinking of them in French, and finding that they slipped away before the unfamiliar English synonyms. All over the field stood little knots, so many tight, motionless statues. Not a muscle seemed to move. Helplessly, all were riveted by fear and hopelessness to the ground. We saw the planes spread out, leaving room for the disabled planes to find their crazy way about. Out of the second plane, Rodney bailed. We watched him, not breathing, until the silk mushroom of his chute opened. Watkins leaped, plumbed it downward, and it seemed that even from that distance we could see him fumbling with the ripcord, fumbling, with no results. Was the lad frightened beyond power of self-control? Had the chute inexplicably stuck? What had happened? Not that any of us much cared for reasons. We saw only that one of our pals, hurtling down through space with his parachute strapped to his back, would in a matter of divided seconds be splattered over the training field. I couldn't look. I could only feel horribly sick as I knew the end had come. When I opened my eyes, the first man I saw was Weiss, riding furiously, his eyes riveted on the spot where the young aviator had landed. My talon-like fingers gripped his arm and tore the pad away. Don't you dare write that story, you ghoul! I cried. Why not? he asked. The glory of war, my friend. I ripped the pad into small pieces and flung them away from me, his teeth bared in a humorless smile. Drama, eh? Why, that futile gesture? Every second of this is written here. He tapped his forehead. And here. He tapped his heart. And what I saw, the rest are going to know. He spun away from me and into another pair of hands, stronger than mine and more compelling. Morin was holding him, his eyes glazed with agony. If you love your country, Weiss, he cried, play this down, not up. Perhaps I love my country which is, by the way, my country and not yours, better than you think. Weiss was white with anger. I'll print it for the good of the rest, who may not have to die as these did. I forbid you to print it. Forbid? Weiss crammed irony into the word, and then walked slowly away. That evening an advance issue of the Daily Rock Ledger appeared with the full story of the fall, Somehow, Weiss had found that Watkins' chute had been so folded that there was no chance of it ever being opened, and the account Rodney gave of his faltering plane 
incoherent and excited as the account must have been, indicated clearly that something must have been done to the engine that caused it to betray its pilot. Associated Press carried the story across the land. Senators began to make speeches about the waste of life in the college aviation program. Mothers and fathers wrote to the colleges, ordering their sons to withdraw from training. And then I met Morin, striding toward the field. I thought he looked as he must have looked when the French army backed up step by step before the advancing German tanks. End of chapter 2